Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast. I'm Glenn McDorman. I'm Brandon Buddha. Today we're covering When I Was Ming the Merciless. This story was initially published in 1975 in the Ides of Tomorrow anthology, which was edited by Tony Carr. We read it, however, in Endangered Species. Before we get into all of this, I want to say a huge thank you to everyone who participated in our drive for reviews, writing reviews of our podcasts, uh, wherever you get them, and even places you don't get them. Uh, we got a lot of new reviews out of that, and that has been extraordinarily helpful. It was especially helpful for shows like Elder Sign and Hanging Out with the Dream King. Actually, Lower Decks, too, got a lot of new reviews, and that was also very helpful. Uh, and in fact, just this morning, I was in communication with the person who won the big prize on that contest, the uh, special bonus episode of Your Choosing. Uh, and uh, we're going to be doing an episode of uh, Babylon 5. That's something uh, Valerie and I are going to do over on Lower Decks, our Star Trek podcast. Uh, and uh, uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. I have not watched Babylon 5 in 10 years, maybe 15 years. I'm going to be really excited to to have a reason to revisit that. Yeah, I, I'm sure it'll be really great to revisit that. I've never gone through Babylon 5, though I've read a J. Michael Straczynski comic that was okay. And I am <laughs> slowly working my way through Sense8 again, which is a show. Man, that's a show I'd like to talk about someday. But uh, there, there's a lot going on with that show. But J. Michael Straczynski is a brilliant writer of television and dramatic arcs and uh, like any kind of storytelling. Yeah. I do have a suspicion that uh, that this listener who who won the contest is uh, trying to nudge us in that direction, <laughs> and uh, so we'll see we'll see how that goes in the in the future. Yeah, I want to echo your thanks that you just gave Glenn for everybody who participated in our little competition for writing reviews. I want to continue those of you who were thinking about writing a review but didn't and are maybe on the fence to just please review us. It helps us so much, and it's just. Also nice to get feedback, uh, but it really helps our network. It helps our show's visibility, and it's something you can do to support the show if you can't support us on Patreon for any reason and you like what we do here. Take a few minutes, write us a review on you know Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you want, and that'll just help us out. And we appreciate everybody who's already written reviews. We appreciate all our listeners. So thanks. Yeah, thank you so much for all of that work that you do to to help us grow our network and get the word out about our shows and and bring more people into the the Gene Wolf club. I mean, that's really what all of this is about. We built a whole network to trick people into becoming Gene Wolf fans, Star Trek <laughs> watchers and yeah, Neil Gaiman readers and so on. Uh, so uh, we, we appreciate the work that you guys are doing on your end to uh, help us achieve that goal. Uh, Brandon, let's get into the, this story. Let's get into When I Was Ming the Merciless. You're going to do the recap this time. Yeah, I am. And this is a difficult story to recap because it's essentially a first person monologue about a psychological experiment a la the Stanford prison experiment gone wrong. We're only given one side of the conversation where a leader in one of the groups of the experiment is being questioned. So bear with me as I make the best of a difficult task here today. The single speaker of the story is exceedingly polite. That's what we get right off the bat to those people who are interrogating him or at least asking him questions about this experiment gone wrong. They've offered this monologuer a cigarette, but he doesn't smoke, though he would really like some coffee. There was only tea available for the duration of the experiment, and he realizes now that he's out of it that he did miss drinking coffee. But because he only drank tea, 
for the duration of the experiment, one supposes he also drank water, uh, he can't drink tea anymore, though he did like it while he was, quote, in there. Sometimes the speaker thinks about the way things used to be out in the real world, but then his thought skips to the moment when the psychades broke through the wall containing the subjects of the experiment and broke it up and released everybody from this experiment. The psychates had guns and the subjects of this experiment had pole arms and swords. So it turns out in the event of this kerfuffle of this scrap, only three of the psychates were hurt. This is what the speaker learned later. And this surprised him because he thought that his group of fighters fought a lot better against this group of armed psychates. Next, we see the speaker telling us, in response to a question that's asked off-page, that he is not ashamed of himself. He's not. Rather, he's proud of his actions and the actions of his peers and of the empire that he built. He knew always that they couldn't win, but everyone fought well, and that's what matters. And hold on, he only raised his voice in answering these questions as a kind of rhetorical trick. He's learned other tricks, like pounding his arm on the chair as he speaks, in order to emphasize the words that he's chosen to use. So, you know, in essence, he was yelling his response about not being ashamed and pounding his hand on the chair to the interrogators of this man. Yeah, I love this bit here. I mean, the speaker is clearly a Klingon, right? <laughs> Fighting well is what matters, not winning. Winning is just a matter of luck. It's not really the point. Uh, we're actually going to talk more about that in the discussion, but also the the yelling of it, the, you know, the sort of violence of giving that speech, clearly uh, a Klingon, which I, I loved. I have to say, too, that this is a, a great setup, the, the, the premise of this story, this getting one side of uh, an interview or an interrogation. We saw this same technique over on Elder Sign. Uh, in fact, when we did Lovecraft's story, the, the statement of Randolph Carter is, as well. And Wolf does a, a great job of building the world and building the, the premise very efficiently in these first few paragraphs. We, at this point, we have no idea exactly what is going on just yet, but we can infer that there is some kind of, I don't know, Lord of the Flies thing, I guess, Lord of the Flies thing going on here where regular American civilians have been turned violent, even homicidal through some kind of isolation. Uh, though it is also evident that this was some kind of experiment and, and you've been calling it that, Brandon, before we've gotten that explicitly, but you know, the interview format here itself suggests that, and also this term, psych aids. And I just love the way that Wolf allows us to make this an inference where not only are we only getting one half of a conversation, but we're not even getting any sense really of what the questions are, uh, that nothing is being explicit, that this is, you know, characteristic Wolf, right? He is telling this story from the perspective of the people who live in this world, not from the perspective of a narrator who stands outside of it. Yeah, it's a fantastic narrative choice. This is something also that Walker Percy does in the novel Lancelot. And in fact, I had to go back and check the copyright date for that novel to see when it was published, <laughs> uh, because it's the second time uh, that we've read a wolf story that has some style choices or narrative choices in common with uh, Walker Percy novel Lancelot. The other one was for lesson with the end of the story and the questions and answers Really fascinating. I have to wonder if these guys were reading each other. Uh, maybe now I'm convinced more that Walker Percy was reading Wolf uh, quietly and secretly on the <laughs> side, and, and maybe not the other way around, because this story came out well before uh, Lancelot was published. That's all an aside. It doesn't really matter. 
uh, it's just interesting to me because sometimes there are these happy coincidences as you're reading a, a number of things at once. At this point in the narrative, in the monologue, the narrator says that he could talk about morality. He could talk about the morality of their choices, but he'd rather talk about how they built the weapons. He doesn't feel as though he needs to justify himself. And in any event, his crew, his group, his tribe needed weapons anyway, and that's more interesting. They were able to build weapons by attaching knives and such to the ends of broom and mop handles. These were the pole arms. They also made swords, which were reserved for officers, and these were made in the graphic arts center by heating up rebar in the furnace burner and then pounding out swords. Naturally, the speaker had the best made sword. He was clearly in charge of whatever took place here. And then the hilt of the rebar sword was made of bone. Uh, this is a uh, past. Uh, this is a detail that's really easy to pass over, but it's kind of a horrifying thought about where they got the bone from. Uh, and it has the symbol of the Lun Rin burned into it. So I gather we're on a college campus, and this is kind of a, a college experiment gone wrong, a psychology experiment. Yeah, I think Graphic Arts Center suggests that pretty pretty strongly, though. You know, that's not entirely clear at, at this point, right? We we do see that it's taking place at least partially indoors. It is you know, someplace that also has a, a well-stocked kitchen as well. And wow, this is a big dose of Wolf the Engineer right here. I mean, there's a whole paragraph just about woodworking. And uh, this is Wolf the Engineer really thinking about what would happen if you tore up a kitchen and tried to make weapons out of it. Uh, I wonder if he and Rosemary were getting their kitchen redone at this point or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's entirely possible. A lot about joists and joining and wood glue. Yeah, I skipped over that in the recap here. It's all there on the page if you read this story. This is also a short wolf story. It's about 10 pages. I mentioned just recently this term of the lung rin. That's what this group ended up calling themselves. And no, they didn't worship it. But there were ceremonies. And this symbol represented all of the yellows. Yeah, people bowed in front of it every once in a while, and the face of the Lungrin did look a little bit like the speaker. But again, this is just another trick. This is a trick of leadership. Uh, not a rhetorical trick, maybe, but a psychological trick that works on groups. The person who made the Lungrin statue had a theory. He thought that, quote, there are things we don't know about that live in the world with us. Things on another plane of reality. And when you make something like that, it comes. One of them comes. It shapes itself to fit your image of it, becoming the real spirit of the yellows. And this is the color that was assigned to this tribe here in this experiment. They lit the statues with torchlight for processions, and they trapped pigeons and rats in it so it would make sounds to make it seem alive. So this Lungren statue kind of became the symbol for the yellows. The speaker doesn't know what happened to the statue, and it doesn't really matter all that much because you can't kill it. It was a symbol, and you can't kill a symbol. The real life of this symbol, of this idea, was in the spirit of those who followed it, the spirit of the yellows. And that will never die Unless the experimenters, the people in charge of this experiment, kill everyone that was a yellow. That's because this experiment was the greatest time of all of their lives, of all the people who participated in it. Everyone bonded over their life before and discussed their plans for the next day. 
They didn't really think about what they would do if they won or what they would do once the experiment was over because they became a community. They were a tight-knit group, and that was really important to all of them. They were going to stand or they were going to fall together. And they understood the importance of unity because they saw what had happened to the Greens, the Greens who couldn't get it together before it was too late, who couldn't form a unit. The Greens had been knocked over too often to be really effective as an organization. The speaker says that, quote, if you take people like that and beat them over and over and over again, most of them stay beaten. One or two will go the other way, become so hard and strong that they're as good as anything you've got, but not most of them. So when the one or two try and lead them, there's no support. I guess this is what happened to the the Greens. They were the low group on the totem pole on the hierarchy of this tribal battle that somehow took place here. The narrator goes on to tell us that there is a sexual component as well, which the Greens clearly did not understand. It was evident from the start of the experiment that the women would have to fight just as well as the men, so equality between the sexes could be achieved. Some men and some women didn't want to fight, obviously, but you could get them to fight by drilling them. And even though some of them didn't want to participate in drills, you could trick them into drilling uh, by calling the drills weapons training practice or something else and do a few things here or there that seemed organic that naturally formalized and coalesced into drills later. Uh, basically, the narrator is telling us that everyone of his group could fight. Looking back, the speaker believes that he could have ordered it. But at this point, early on in the experiment, when they were just kind of teaching people how to fight and people were realizing they would have to fight, uh, he was not in charge yet. He wasn't the emperor. He was still thinking of himself as a political science major. And yes, other majors were present in the experiment as well. There were students of sociology or psychology that played this game too. Yeah, so this is now clearly happening on a university campus. Our narrator is a student. Uh, it seems like they're all undergraduate students. We're never going to fully understand the the physical scope of the experimental area, or, you know, I don't know, we might call it the playing field, I guess. But they are also able to be outside. So it, it may be that this is happening over a pretty large part of the campus. And, and maybe this is a d detail that doesn't really matter to anyone who doesn't work <laughs> at a campus or live on a campus. But, you know, I've spent I know, a huge chunk of my life on university campuses. And there was no way I could read this story without trying to fit it into every single university campus I've ever been to, to, to imagine how this game might be played out, what part of the campus it would be on. Uh, it did also make me really think that this story is, uh, I guess, the, the grim dark version of the uh, paintball episodes of the TV show Community. <laughs> I thought of that as well, for sure. <laughs> and uh, really made me want to go binge Community again. I don't know, maybe we'll start a community podcast or something. I don't know. We have no more time for more podcasts, but somehow I'm always dreaming up new podcasts we should do. There are a couple other things I want to point out here in this section. Uh, a lot of the names and even the color symbolism here uh, point to Wolf thinking about Asian cultures broadly and, and maybe Chinese culture specifically. We're going to be taking that up in the discussion. But I do also want to point out here the emphasis on gender equality and in fact, true equality in general. That's something else that we're going to talk about in the discussion. 
Yeah, it's a it's a big part of this story, and it comes up again at this point in the monologue, this idea of the sexual component. And the narrator realized that this sexual component reared its head really early on during the fighting training. Uh, for instance, if a man was fighting a woman and he beat her, he might be tempted to take other liberties as well especially if he had torn the woman's clothing or something like that. And this sort of thing happened, I think, often in other groups. And so the women would try to escape the other groups that they were a part of in order to join the yellows where this thing was verboten. It was not happening. But they couldn't join. The women of the other color groups couldn't join because everyone was color-coded not only by the clothing that they were forced to wear during the duration of the experiment, um, but they were also given these uh, color-coded bracelets that they couldn't take off. They couldn't be removed. The emperor makes it clear here, the speaker, <laughs> that he did not like the clothes and the color coding of the clothes, though he recognized the important symbolic power behind the, the group unity they gave. And, and by the end of the experiment, all of his guards, men and women alike, wore their yellow shirts as headbands in order to identify themselves as yellows. They no longer wore their shirts in any way, which were largely useless because they'd been torn up or cut up from knife training or other exercises. But the women, uh, being topless, also served as a kind of advantage in battle because it differentiated them from the other groups. At first... The differentiation in group, the advantage of looking different, uh, was given to the blues, who had the advantage because the color blue, the deep blue that they wore, reminded everyone of the federal of the federal police. It was a color of authority, a color that represented authority in the minds of the other contestants, the other people involved in this experiment. But eventually the yellows gained this differentiating factor uh, because of the way the emperor chose to have his personal guard and maybe his warriors wear their clothing. Plus, they had made a flag from the emperor's own shirt. And he makes it clear that he wants this flag back when all of this is sorted out and the yellows are allowed to join back together. At this point, the speaker cannot emphasize enough that there was no mixing between the groups. No group could join another group. Yes, some of the Greens were technically in the yellow camp, but they were used as slaves. Jan, for instance, who was a female, she's the best warrior of the yellows, kept a Green slave lover who fought against the Blues every now and then, but a Green could never become a yellow. The Emperor never had to learn the Greens' name or any name from any other group because Blues and Greens didn't have names. They were not Yellows. They were Blues or Greens, and Yellows were the only people whose names were important enough to know. Besides the choice of attire, or lack thereof, uh, of the Emperor's guard, there was also the idea of the Emperor and the Empire, which was perpetuated by the Speaker himself, and this was... This also served to create group cohesion and differentiate the yellows from other groups. This idea was talked about enough that it became an idea that the people served, the idea of the empire. And at this point, again off page, the speaker is asked what the experiment was about. He thinks it was about the world. 
there are limited resources and too many people. So what happens when you play this out in a small scale? The speaker knows that there were other experiments in the past, but the people who ran this one were really interested in this cohort's solution. And the yellow solution was to build an empire and control all of the resources. It was to control everyone's place in the strata of society. And by doing so, they could understand how resources were doled out, how to ration resources, how to create stratification, as I said, hierarchies in group society. And yes, the speaker goes on. The empire was just called the empire. Early on in their time of talking about it, they called it Mongolia. And that's only because the group was wearing yellow. Uh, but that name was quickly abandoned or shortened in favor of the empire. This is Gene Wolfe setting up the, the first beat in what's going to be a joke that we're going to get in the, the last line of the, the, the story. So we're near, we are, and, and we are approaching the end. We are we're only a few paragraphs away from the end of the story at this point, but it is now clear to us that the, the narrator is definitely thinking about the world in terms of political science. He's thinking about how do you build a new nation? How do you build a new group with a shared identity? We're getting some really good answers here. Uh, maybe interesting answers, I should say, not necessarily good ones. We are going to be talking about those uh, shortly in the in the discussion for sure. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot that I had to leave out. Again, this story functions so well as a monologue that it is a struggle to recap because things you might say in passing that you don't think a lot about that are deeply ingrained in your experience that you can just pass over in a sentence require a lifetime of maybe engagement with a person to be able to decode if you, if you know somebody well. And Wolf is doing that so well in this monologue. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of interest maybe to the discussion that I that I haven't been able to hammer home really well in an effort to maintain at least a semblance of the style of the story. But as you said, Glenn, we are really close to the end here. Now, the speaker is asked if he feels bad about one of the girls who died. And this girl was one of the green or blues. But at this point, who can even remember uh, because they're green or blue? But this girl kept acting out of line. So they ceremonially punished her and killed her. They made a really big fire with the brazers that they had. And then Jan put a sword through the girl's belly and they burned her alive. Uh, really, the only reason the emperor did this was in order to keep everyone else in line. It's a classic, you can't get an omelet if you don't break eggs scenario in the mind of the narrator, that he's really downplaying the reality of what happened, the horror of what happened in favor of maintaining some larger ideal. Right. What he's describing is a, a ritual murder, a sadistic ritual murder. Exactly. Once the girl died, though, the psychades broke down the wall. This is when the people who are monitoring the experiment end it. Uh, the speaker supposes that the people... Those who were running the experiment were monitoring the life signs of only some of the people, which I find suspect. I think the bracelets were probably monitoring the life signs of everybody, and that the girl who they killed was one of them. Uh, and again, this is to say that uh, we would have been able to pull this off if not for you meddling kids sort of attitude <laughs> that, the, that the emperor has. And of course, the speaker understands how everybody witnessing the experiment feels about this terrible thing that he had to do in order to keep everybody in line and keep the empire intact. 
empire intact. He understands how the school and the public feels. He understands how the president feels. But none of them could possibly understand how the yellows felt. The speaker says, you haven't been through what we went through together. We have learned a great many things we will remember, but none of you could possibly know how it was then, when I was Ming the Merciless. And that's the end of the story. Right. So here, this last line, we get the the title of the story. And this is a, a dramatic revelation of sorts, right? That this guy was Ming the Merciless. It's also a very Gene Wolfe joke, right? Ming the Merciless is the arch nemesis of Flash Gordon, dating all the way back to the comics Genesis in 1934. And... All of this, right? Ming the Merciless in Flash Gordon is a real artifact of the Yellow Peril, and that is definitely something we're going to talk about in the discussion. But it is not the first thing that I want to talk about in the discussion. Yeah, I mean, this this introduction of Ming the Merciless is really fun. I mean, it's the name of the story when I was Ming the Merciless. But, right, this is part of, as you pointed out, the Yellow Peril. It's a major part of the history of Orientalism, of Chinese people being pre- represented in in very particular ways in Western culture and usually in villainous ways. And that is clearly a huge part of the story. But I want to start by taking a step backwards and looking at kind of the, the artifice that surrounds this story, looking at the, the setup to the whole thing, uh, maybe kind of the, the the box or the maybe the sandbox, we should say, that these people have have played this sick game in, uh, thinking about this as a psychological experiment. We absolutely have to talk about the famous and, and really infamous, perhaps, Stanford prison experiment uh, that is all over this story. And, and, and Brandon, of the two of us, you are the one with the real interest in psychology. So I'm going to kick this one to you. I'll let you, I'll let you give uh, a little pre to listeners about the Stanford prison experiment. So this was an experiment run by Stanford in 1971. It was an experiment designed to test what happens when people are given authority and free reign to act out that authority over others. So there were two groups in the experiment. There were uh, prison guards and there were prisoners. And there were a set of rules, I suppose, that the guards were asked to abide by, uh, uh, and and to treat with the prisoners with if they broke any of those rules. And it was to look at, you know, how groups form, how group identities form. Um, but it really became an experiment that demonstrated how easy it is for people to abuse power. The guards ended up treat, being merciless to the prisoners. Uh, I'm not really, I can't really recall if people were harmed in the experiment, though my sense is that they, that they were. Uh, and this is a trope of genre storytelling actually all over the place, especially in the TV age. Many, many TV shows that take place in like colleges or high schools use this as a dramatic arc. I'm thinking specifically of uh, season two of season three of Veronica Mars, where uh, this is a, this is a, a story arc in one of the episodes, but yeah, this was, this was a big deal and other college experiments like this, have really demonstrated how easy it is for people to cause harm to others when they're given permission to do so. There was another famous experiment, uh, though I don't recall exactly what it took place, where college students were asked to administer shocks of increasing pain, of increasing intensity to other college students who were receiving the shocks and the people who were giving the shocks continued to do so to the point of really hurting 
the other students uh, only because they were told to continue to up the ampage that in fact their kind of moral requirements of of being of encountering another human being were erased and minimized the moment the burden of carrying that ethical decision was relieved from them by an authority um, and it's really fascinating. All these experiments really came out of the wake of World War II and the number of people who went along with the Nazi regime of the genocides that they committed. And people didn't understand why and how easy it is for people to give up an ethic to please authority figures or how easy it is for authority to overstep its ethical boundaries in the favor of following new rules. And and that is the vein that these experiments took, though it's not clear to me that that is the vein of experiment that set the conditions for the ritual murder of this girl in this story. Yeah, both of these experiments were trying to figure out how you can turn regular, good, law-abiding, perfectly happy members of a, an open society into Nazis, into the perpetrators of the Holocaust. Though my understanding is that uh, both of these experiments, what they what they learned is basically useless because they were run so poorly that they were not conducted in a particularly scientific manner that they don't really stand up to the, uh, the, the rigorous criteria of what a psychological experiment should be. But certainly they speak to the interests that people had in the aftermath of the, the Second World War, and in particular, in this case, in the aftermath of the Holocaust. And even as other genocides are happening around the globe in the 20th century. Right. That's absolutely true. And that's actually a, and that's an accusation that's leveled at a lot of uh, psychological experiments, that there's no ability to rerun the experiment and get the same results. I think the kind of standard book on how easy it was for people to become Nazis, the standard text on this is a book called Ordinary Men by Christopher Browning. Uh, about the Reserve Police Battalion and uh, their massacre of Jewish uh, Poles in World War II. It's an absolutely harrowing read. It's something I've only been able to read once and, and can never really go back to. But it, it it's not so much scientific as it is social conditioning, as it is people's desires innate desires maybe to please authority figures or to be a, to prove their authority to others. Following orders can be a real problem uh, when people don't have a good maybe ethical training or a good sense of uh, a good orientation towards others or the meaning of other human beings. And the, the Stanford prison experiment was really focused on looking at how individuals can dehumanize other individuals in order to, to make them seem lesser than so that you can abuse them so that you can uh, shove them into to gas chambers or, or other means of, of killing them, right? It was, is how do you get one group of people to start thinking of another group of people as not human anymore and, and therefore outside of the bounds of, of moral constraints? And that definitely is something that we've seen Gene Wolfe be interested in before. I mean, this is all over VRT, right? Where we talked about, uh, where we talked about the, how do you tell the difference between a human and, uh, an animal, uh, how do you tell the difference between a human and all sorts of things? And VRT is at least 50% a prison narrative and is looking 
very and looks very emotionally, very empathetically at how VRT himself comes to feel dehumanized in the the, the prison there on Saint Croix, and both of these stories, VRT and Ming the Merciless, right? They're very close in proximity to the Stanford Prison Experiment, which uh, 1971, so one year before VRT, and you know only what three or four years, I guess, before Ming the Merciless here. But in this story, in Ming the Merciless, the the dehumanization is not really a, coming about here as a as a means of internal social control or or for the purpose of internal social control what we're seeing wolf look at here i think anyway is is dehumanization as a means of building up a new group identity we might think of it as nation building that's certainly in the text but i think that you and i brandon could also think of it as basic training uh or you know maybe even better we could think of it as serving in the korean war but even with the obvious parallels to the stanford prison experiment this really felt like an army story to me I, I think you're right on with that. This is absolutely an army story. It's got a lot to say about training, about how military training in particular is not so much about being able to wield a weapon well. It's more about building a group identity where you're willing to sacrifice yourself for the group identity, whether it's a platoon or a company or an army. Uh, and it's also about thinking of the enemy as less than, as a pile of tires or as something that feeds the grass or the land, as, as thinking of them really as the enemy and not as people who are perhaps going about their lives, who have their own sense of the world, uh, who you are now ordered to fight and that is definitely a big part of the story as well. Group I the formation of group identity around these color lines, the ease with which the yellows are able to create an identity around superiority, which is definitely a part of the motif of honor in military training. I, I suppose everywhere anybody's a soldier, they have to think that their military has more honor than other militaries. And the ease with which they can kill or enslave others as a result of that because they're less than. Uh, we even see the way that the narrator of the story thinks so little of the Greens because of the way they treat and brutalize their women. And meanwhile, the woman in this story, Jan, uh, has a sex slave who's a man. And that is not brought up as a form of brutalization or dehumanization. So it, Gene Wolfe also really captures that sense of double think that's required to maybe be a good ideologue, though not necessarily a good soldier. Right. This story is very much also about building group identities on a, a much larger scale than a, a platoon or a company or, or you know a squad learning how to uh, interact together in, uh, in in the military and maybe in particular in a combat situation, right? There is definitely nation building going on here, right? Constructing an entirely new group identity out of something else. And, and there's a real pragmatic way that uh, the narrator, who was once Ming the Merciless, goes about doing this, right? He's using the knowledge he has as a political scientist, um, though I'm not sure what classes he's taking where they're uh, they're teaching how to how to do this. I'd actually be really interested in those classes. He's taking the uh, protagonist of Delillo's White Noise Hitler study classes. It <laughs> yeah. sounds like. <laughs> 
That's the uh, that's the formal name. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's uh, political science uh, three twenty or something like that in the <laughs> in the course catalog. I'm sure. But he's got two things going on here, right? Because you you need to build up what our group is, but then you also need to build up who's not in the group and and why not and how do we feel about them, right? And he is clearly doing both of these things, and Wolf shows us that. Though I think that Wolf is at his best here in this story when we see him when we seeming the merciless talking about the things that he did internal to his group providing them with with new symbols this this lung rin for example uh, and a new sense of identity that is about the things they do together uh, getting together ritually around a fire to talk about how awful their lives were when they were on the outside of this experiment when they used to be totally different people uh, changing the uniforms that they've been given by the experimenters right As they've already been given uniforms and you could just embrace those, but they want to actually completely differentiate their uniforms from other people to, to take control, take command of the, the the way that their clothing manifests their identity or broadcasts their identity. Uh, all sorts of little details like that, the, the drilling, the ripping up of the, the kitchen to make weapons, all of these these activities that build this, this group cohesion and that at the same time, tear down the old identities they have and give them a new identity that is focused around the community that they have together, uh, which can sound really beautiful, right? That's cool to start a new community. I mean, this is, uh, we could be talking about a new religion here as well, but of course, what we're actually talking about in the story is a group of undergraduate students, young people aged 18 to 22, who are fighting, physically fighting other young people aged 18 to 22 and end up murdering at least one of them and taking several of them as slaves and and not in a game sense, in a very real sense, right? There's rape happening in this story as well as ritual murder and all of it in the service of this nation building. I think that's what Wolf is exploring so well in this story is the is how people act in service to an idea we could be talking about the formation of a new religion uh, a new group identity anything along those lines a new club maybe <laughs> though this is a pretty <laughs> horrifying club but what wolf is looking at is the way that the leader of this community is willing to write off the play acting the imaginary part of it as being fake he knows it's fake because he made it up but he also says that yeah people did bow down to the symbol we did have some we did have rituals but everybody knew that they were fake and this is a, a really interesting take on the way that these ideas function in society is it doesn't matter if they're real or if they're fake, as long as people act as if they're real, and as long as leaders know that people will be willing to act as if they're real in order to protect their group identity, people can be shrewdly manipulated by putting these ideas into play in either social discourse or by rewarding groups for having these ideas or by creating forms of external pressure that ostracize people from groups who break from these ideas. And and this happens actually a lot in, in American political discourse today, that violating the line, uh, the party line, or the group identity of what the group finds or holds sacred can find you outside of that group. We don't just have people located in a geography 
in the same area who have to learn how to live with one another's differences, we have people grouping up and forming communities around shared ideas. And then people who don't have those ideas can't be part of the group. And this is something how our ideology function. This is about how our ideology functions today in our political discourses. And, and, and this was something that I think really shrewd writers, people who were paying a, a really close attention to the American political discourse in the 1970s were beginning to crack as well. This is not the first story that was written in the 70s that, that I've read that is beginning to fear the way th this discourse is functioning. And if we're thinking in terms of American political ideologies, and Wolf frequently is, I mean, we've read Operation Ares here. Uh, this story is taking place right in the, the middle of a, a pretty radical reconfiguring of, of what political conservatism means in America. But I, I'm not sure that Wolf is engaging with that so much in this story as he's engaging with things like the problem of how do you make Nazis uh, and, and another really sort of large scale, also top down moves to radically reconfigure. The, the values of societies that was happening all over the place or had happened all over the place in the 20th century. And I don't think that we can ignore something else that was really big in the, the, the news, uh, you know, alongside with the, the prison Stanford experiment and that we see in this story, right? I'm thinking here of the, the Chinese, the Mongolian, the, the Japanese imagery in this story. And it seems to me that Wolf also here is clearly thinking about the, the Chinese cultural revolution of the, the 1960s and the 1970s. And this was a, you know, a direct top-down attempt by Mao to radically alter Chinese culture by undoing longstanding identities uh, and also social bonds and then replacing them with new identities and new social bonds that looked to his ideology and to his authoritarian position for their own legitimacy. And I think that that is the model, the very specific model that Wolf has in mind here. I think he just read like a big Chicago Tribune uh, expose about about the Chinese cultural revolution and wrote this story. Yeah, that's entirely possible. And I, yeah, I, I don't think that Wolf is looking at the particular content necessarily of these ideas or ideologies. He's looking at the fact that they function. He's looking at the functioning and not the content, though the reality of the uh, Chinese Cultural Revolution and the color symbolism in this story, um, not just the color yellow being explicitly associated with the Chinese or Orientalism as it stands in American pulp fiction and American fiction in general, but also the color blue as the authoritarian police, the federal police, the, the, the arm of the U.S. government that functions to almost as a military to police its own people. Um, this is something that Hannah Arendt writes about in The Origins of Totalitarianism uh, rather brilliantly as well. So I think Wolf is looking at the that these ideas function so well, that these strategies are so universally applicable more than the specific content of the ideologies themselves. I agree completely. I mean, I think Wolf, like many people living at this time, living in the 1970s, living in the middle of the 20th century, how can you not look around the world and see 
too many instances of something like this happening and almost always to the detriment of people. And by detriment, we mean the putting of people into uh, forced labor camps that uh, many of which then turned into death camps. I mean, we're talking uh, what close to 100 million people who are executed in, in some sort of camp like this by their own governments uh, over a period of what, three or four decades in the middle of the 20th century. How could you not be living through that and looking around the world wondering how this is happening? Why is this happening? And and what, if anything, can we can we do about it? I mean, it's clearly on on Wolf's mind here. Uh, but we should talk about some of the specifics here, right? You you raised the the issue of the the color symbolism here, so we do need to talk about this story in terms of the yellow peril. Uh, this is uh, this is also where we're going to talk about Klingons, by the way, though only very briefly. But we will talk about Klingons. The the yellow peril is this uh, cultural phenomenon in Western Europe and North America that perceived Asian civilizations, or maybe Asian civilization, might be the way actually that uh, people of the time would have characterized it, uh, saw Asian civilizations, Asian people as a threat to the, the Western world, to Western civilization. In fact, this is really where we get this idea of Eastern civilization and Western civilization, or really Eastern civilization versus Western civilization. And the, the Yellow Peril, this was prevalent in Western Europe, prevalent in North America, uh, I'm going to say from 1870, uh, though, you know, that's kind of a round number that I just kind of picked. But, you know, after after maybe during also i guess we might say the rash of of nationalism in both western europe and north america that's something we've talked about on a, a number of podcasts including our uh, episodes on the repair of reputations on elder signs so i'll just refer people to, to to check that out if they want to know more about the way i'm using the term nationalism there but uh, then this really went until the end of the second world war though i think we need to say now we're recording this in uh, 2020 during the midst of a pandemic. Uh, it seems like maybe it's still ongoing, right? With the the way that some people have responded to the origin of COVID-19, also trade wars with China even before that outbreak. So maybe some of this is still lingering in, in some ways. But there was a, a real fear during this time that there are just so many Asians or, or so many Chinese or Japanese, if people wanted to be more specific about it, and this real fear that their way of life is so antithetical to Western civilization that we here in the West have to be on guard against their attempts, uh, their insidious attempts at world domination. And this is all over the period. We see this in in lot of writers that we talk about on the network. It's uh, in Jack London, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. Uh, both of these guys wrote stories envisioning uh, a future where yellow people have taken over the West and subjugated this beautiful open society to their intrinsic authoritarianism. This is this, this is a real, uh, this is a glaring part of the culture of the late 19th and, and early 20th century. It also is part of uh, authoritarian thinking as well to fear and dehumanize the people that you enslave. And, uh, you know, for those who are not really aware of the history of, like, the U.S. railroad system, the history of the American West, the uh, Chinese people were put to labor almost as slaves or maybe, in fact, as slaves to build much of the railroad infrastructure of this country, especially in the West of this country and it, it's a, a, a knee-jerk reaction especially in authoritarian thinking which all slave societies or at least since chattel slavery was uh, the norm for a long time that any group you put to slavery in this way there's a great fear 
that if they get power, they will punish you for what you've done. It's it's almost a way of uh, experiencing guilt socially through the fear of reprisal, of, of almost admitting that what you've done is wrong to these human beings by fearing what will happen if they ever get free. Uh, and that also played a big part in this fear of Asian culture, of Asians specifically during this time period you mentioned from the 1870s to, I don't know, the 1970s. And one of the places where we see this in, in our culture is that a lot of these uh, iconic heroes, people like Flash Gordon, also people like Batman, I mean, just about everyone we can think of from the pulp magazine and comic book phase of the, the early 20th century, a lot of these big arch nemeses, these big villains are vaguely Asian in some way, and also in many ways, specifically Chinese, specifically Japanese, or specifically Mongolian. And even in Flash Gordon, which is taking place you know, in outer space and in the, the far future, there is here Ming the Merciless, who is clearly a Mongolian warlord, a ruler of, I mean, he's Kublai Khan, basically, or Genghis Khan, maybe, is who he's supposed to be, is held up here as the arch nemesis of this uh, of this shining white person, and, and really Aryan person might be the way that people of the 1930s uh, would have described him. And we see this all over the pop culture of the time. This also, I do want to say, shows up in Star Trek. The Klingons, who, you know, if you watch 1990s era Star Trek, if you watch The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, uh, Klingons are absolutely space samurai, though there's nothing denigrating about the way that, that they're depicted, or maybe there is, but it's a little more nuanced, a little more complicated than that. But that's a retcon of what Klingons were conceived of, as, or how Klingons were conceived of by Gene Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn as they were developing them in the 1960s. The Klingons of the original series of Star Trek were meant to be Chinese communists. They were meant to look, uh, and the word used in the, the notes that we can see in the, the records of the show is to look uh, vaguely mongoloid, to appear to be evil Asians, to, to appear to be this yellow threat to the Federation, even as the bridge of the Enterprise is self-consciously designed to show Western society, to show the United States as made up of every race imaginable, right? That there's George Takei as Sulu on the bridge, yet still this the cultural legacy of the Yellow Peril is something that these science fiction writers just can't escape in the 1960s. And that's how we get Klingons. It's such an important part of pulp adventure stories. Uh, you know, you have basically two real problems of race representation in pulp adventure stories. It's the kind of backwards Africa uh, or the educated African. And then you have the Eastern, the, the Orient, you have Eastern civilizations who are the major threats. Uh, and it's just all over Pulp Fiction of this time, of the 1880s, 1890s, through the 1920s and 1930s. It's the norm it's the unthought norm even to have these representations in fiction to give people that sense of comfort food in the stories that they're reading. I'm sure we have that in our fiction today. I, I don't necessarily read a lot of 
uh, like comfort food novels. I don't really have time for it anymore. But these sorts of ideas, though they're not put to the same physical representations, are a huge part of what makes Pulp Fiction work. It's the legacy of Pulp Fiction. Uh, and, and it's something that, you know, has been addressed in, in a lot of ways. And Wolf is doing a, a really interesting and wolf is really attempting to address that in the 1970s in this story of wrestling with the legacy of the fiction that he loves and i think star trek is an interesting example of this because i think that if gene roddenberry and gene coon had been pressed on the issue if they had sat down and thought about it they would have understood that the way that they were developing the klingons was totally antithetical to the way that they were developing the bridge of the enterprise and really counterproductive to their stated goals of doing the the show the the contrary to the vision of the future that gene roddenberry wanted to promote but it was an implicit way of storytelling an implicit mode of storytelling that simply wasn't interrogated by these creators we all do this sort of thing i mean i I would like to come back 150, 200 years from now and see what people are saying about the the fiction of the, the early 21st century and the things that we simply aren't examining about ourselves, things that actually, if we did examine them, we might want to not put in our stories, for example. But uh, I think now that we have digressed fully into me talking about Klingons, uh, uh, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us in our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. We'd love for you to join us on the forum and talk about this legacy of Pulp Fiction, of Gene Wolfe's way of wrestling with it. As a fan of the forum and one who was troubled by the reality of the wars in the 20th century and the way and the ways in which, especially as uh, one who's been in the military, it is easy to to uh, dehumanize and denigrate the culture and uh, lives and legitimate lives of those who live differently from Americans. I think, Glenn, you and I have both had real moments of reflection uh, post being in the military about the sorts of norms that were conditioned into us. And I think Gene Wolfe has these reflections all over his fiction. Indeed. I, I thought for sure we were going to spot more basic training stories than we actually did on this episode, which was uh, which was zero. So maybe I'll, I'll swap one right now. But a lot of this, but there were certainly parts of this story that reminded me about the social conditioning of basic training. And uh, one moment that stands out for me in particular was when uh, I was called four eyes for wearing glasses uh, by a drill sergeant who also was wearing glasses, but yet somehow <laughs> wearing glasses for him was fine. <laughs> wearing glasses for me was an object of denigration. And uh, of course, I laughed at this and that was the that was the mistake. I got my uh, my free will and identity push up out of me there uh, uh, for sure. So I don't know. I would love to swap more stories like this on the forum or on our uh, our new subreddit, which is just Clay Temple Media. Uh, we're going to be back on September fifteenth with Thag, which you can also find in Endangered Species. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs> <laughs>